Good morning, La Habra. <laughs> Wait, Steve has you well trained. Way to go, Steve. My name is Clint Arnold. I'm one of the members here, and it's uh, a privilege and a delight this morning to be able to share the word with you. We're going to go back into the book of Acts this morning, so I'd invite you to take your Bibles, and if you don't have one, there's some there on the ends, and open them up to Acts chapter 14. But um, I'm very glad to be able to sit in for, uh, uh, for Dennis occasionally like this. He's away for the weekend getting a very well-deserved break. That guy works so many hours during the week and uh, labors very intensively for this ministry here. But one of the things, and I think Steve has set me on a path here, I think I'm going to do this this morning, one of the things that comes out of the passage that we're in today is a glimpse into the creation of church leadership. And First Corinthians, or Acts 14, 30, 23 says this, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And the context of this passage is Paul the Apostle planning churches, revisiting them, and then helping develop the leadership of every particular local church. Notice he says we didn't appoint a pastor in every church, we appointed elders in every church. Our uh, congregation here at Sonora High School for Redemption Hill La Habra has a group of elders. We also call them overseers, and I'm going to ask them to stand up for a moment just so that we recognize them. So elders, overseers, uh, we've got Joe Orr back there, Dennis is one of them, George Kinsley, Steve Janney, Mark Loomis, and Mark Comstock. They are working way behind the scenes, and we want to appreciate you and express that appreciation, so thank you for the work that you're doing. The guy that we're going to read about today, the Apostle Paul, says in his uh, letter to the Thessalonians, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And uh, we, as a group here, want to express our love and appreciation for the way that you support Dennis and Joe and for the way you have labored diligently for this work here. So I invite you to turn to for Acts 14. I want to keep saying 1 Corinthians. I think that's, again, Steve's fault, so I'll blame him for things. But... Uh, uh, just still coming off of a, a great day yesterday, my wife and I celebrated our 34th wedding anniversary. So we <laughs> had a marvelous time and very grateful for the way the Lord has blessed my life with a wonderful partner. And so um, it's been a while since we've been in Acts. I can't remember how long it's been, quite a while. We've had a, a series in Easter and so on. So the question is, where have we been with Acts? Acts is 28 chapters. We're in 14. So we're about halfway through this series right now in the book of Acts. Um, we celebrated Easter last week. Uh, we celebrated Good Friday. We celebrated the resurrection on Easter morning. Uh, in the chronology of Acts, that was about 15 years ago. So Acts 1 and Acts 2 
recount some of these events. Luke, the Gospel of Luke, is actually the first volume of this two-volume set. And at the end of Luke, we get the passion of Christ, and then his resurrection, and then his appearances. And so that's the beginning of the book of Acts. And from that time on, we begin to see the gospel spreading throughout the land of Israel. And we see it uh, moving from Jerusalem to Judea into Samaria, and, and then up even northward into Caesarea, and then to Antioch of Syria. By the time we come to Acts 13, where we were last, the church has said to set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work that the God had called them to, and that was taking the gospel out into the Roman world. And they do that. And so the first thing they do is they go to the island of Cyprus in Acts chapter 13, and then they sail from Cyprus over to Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. They travel up north for a couple hundred miles, and then they go to a triangle of cities, Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And that's where we're at today with Acts chapter 14, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And I just wanted to mention uh, that these are real places. So, Robin, if you want to go ahead and put them up here, I don't know how well you can see them, uh, but these are, uh, this is a map here, is uh, the land of Israel down here, Jerusalem, and the gospel has spread north uh, in this direction, and Antioch of Syria is where Paul spent many years, that was his missionary sending church, he goes to the island of Cyprus, and then up into this area here, which is modern-day Turkey. Then it was called Roman Asia. Next slide. And a little bit closer up, you can see the journey. So he is, in Acts 13, was in Antioch and Pisidia. Pisidia is a region. And then today we're going to see Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe in the ministry that he has in proclaiming the gospel right there. Next slide. And I know the print is really small, but I just wanted to put this up for a little bit of impact. This is a scan from an atlas that was produced by the National Endowment of Humanities. It's called the Barrington Atlas of the Roman World. These are real places. They have been discovered. This is not uh, make-believe or fairy tale. Here is Iconium. Here is Lystra and Derby, about 20 miles from Iconium to Lystra and about 93 miles over from Lystra to Derby, And they make a triangle of cities right in the heartland of Asia, uh, Roman Asia. This area is also called Galatia. It was the Roman province of Galatia. And one of the things that we'll see is the passage we're reading about today forms the background to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Very important uh, aspect of what we're looking at. That's good. Thanks, Robin. A number of years ago, when my kids were pretty small, um, I, I don't know why, it was kind of a silly thing, but I, I love to enter into their stories a little bit and inject myself into the stories. And one of the things we enjoyed watching was The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> and love those, those uh, stories of the new adventures. They were uh, on television, and we had tapes of them, saw so many of them over and over again. And I remember a discussion I had with the kids one time. They, 
they said, where is the 100-acre wood? And I just said, well, I said, I know exactly where it's at, because if we got in our van and we drove down Rosecrans and then went up I-5, 250 miles, and then got off on the 180 and then drove 54 miles into the mountains and then turned left on this dirt road and then right at a fence, that's where it's at. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> They believed it, and uh, I don't know when they ever realized maybe that's not exactly the case, but the 100-acre wood is make-believe. It's uh, it's part of a fun story. When we read the Bible, however, these are not make-believe stories. These are not 100-acre wood places that only exist in fantasy. This was real life, and we can go there today. Last year, I led a tour to the country of Turkey from a number of people from this group and from Whittier Hills went and we were on the west coast and this is a little further east but we could go and visit it today in these ways. So what Paul is doing in this uh, chapter of 14 is he's taking the gospel, he's taking the message of Easter and he's been commissioned by the church to go take this into this new territory where they've never heard it before, where there are Jewish synagogues and there are thousands and thousands of Roman people and people who live in this central part of Asia. And he's going to proclaim the gospel into these new territories, and this is the story of what happened. Now, I think Acts 14 is the perfect passage to preach after Easter because if we were to look at the beginning of the story and the end, and then look at intervals in between, there's one theme that emerges more strongly than anything else, and that is the theme of faith. So the question is, how do we respond to the message of Easter? This is the message that Paul is proclaiming as he goes out. And the clarion call that he gives is we respond by faith in that. We see faith as the response as we go through Acts 14. So the message today is, in a sense, an exploration of faith. What does it mean to have faith? What does it look like in all of its different dimensions? So I would invite you to have a a pencil or a pen handy when you go through this chapter 14. And feel free, you can underline your Bibles and things like that and notice the times that it mentions faith. Now look in verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Belief is the verb form for the word faith. And so the passage begins with a group of people, a vast group of people, putting their faith in the Easter message that Paul is proclaiming. When we go to the end of this chapter, we see this in verse 27. Paul is back now in Antioch of Syria and he's telling the whole summary of what happened on his journey. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remain no little time with the disciples. So it begins and it ends with faith 
And the story is how God has opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, that's important to recognize that something big has happened from the moment of Easter. Easter, the Passion Week, and Easter form a center point in history. Things were one way before then, and things are a different way afterwards. And before that, in God's way of working, uh, there wasn't a door of faith open to the Gentiles. There had been a promise given to Abraham that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. More than just the Jews would be blessed. It was They were the medium. But the way that it was working was through Jerusalem because it was at Jerusalem that God was trying to attract the nations where they could see the ways that he worked with his people Israel marvel at it and respond to God. But it was all through the medium of Jerusalem. The sacrificial system, all of the, uh, the pilgrim festivals and everything that went along with that. Now, Jesus has come, proclaimed the kingdom of God. He's suffered, he's died, he's been resurrected. The spirit of God has come and things are changed. And there, this passage is now calling that there's a door of faith now open to the Gentiles. And what this means is that we as Gentiles, non-Jews, have direct access to, access to God. We no longer need to go through the ritual sacrificial system or go to Jerusalem and find God in a temple. That we now have direct and immediate access to God. It's an amazing change. It's a door of faith. Because what we have is an opportunity to hear the message of the good news of God's love and immediately and directly respond to God in faith. This is what Paul is taking out to these different communities. So Acts 14 is all about faith. Let's explore that together a little bit this morning. And I just want to read through the text and then make a few comments as we go and highlight this theme of faith that's so crucial uh, to, this, to this passage. So Acts chapter 14, 1 through 5, Paul at Iconium. We've read the first verse uh, with a great number of Jews and Greeks who believed, and then verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So the message of faith, the message of the Easter was proclaimed in the city of Iconium. A good number of people responded, but there were also a number of people that were hostile to that message and became even violent uh, to the message of the gospel. I would say that the heart of the gospel might even be best summarized by a passage that the Apostle Paul says elsewhere. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he says, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, 
that died for our sins according to the scripture, Good Friday, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, Easter morning, according to the scripture, and that he appeared first to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then to 500 other witnesses, many of whom are alive today. That's Paul's words to the Corinthians. And he says that is the heart of the gospel, what we've just celebrated in our Easter time. The appearances of Jesus after his resurrection were evidence that the resurrection really did take place. The empty tomb was also evidence that the resurrection had in fact taken place. Once again, God is not asking us to put our faith in a fairy tale. There's extraordinary evidence for this. My oldest son, Jeff, and I are doing some writing together right now. And uh, Jeff wrote up a piece on what is faith. And I got a kick out of reading one illustration that he used in this uh, chapter that he had written about going to work in a co-worker reaching into a pocket and pulling out a lottery ticket and said, gotta have faith. And I think a lot of people probably think of faith in that way. Uh, It's gotta have faith. It's a leap into nothingness. It's a leap into the dark. Have you guys looked at the California Lottery website to see what the statistics are for winning the Powerball Lottery? I have. I looked recently And the chances of winning the California Powerball Lottery, getting five out of five numbers in the Powerball, is one in 175 million. So is that faith or is that craziness? (laughs) There is a chance. (laughs) What we're talking about with faith in terms of the message of the gospel, is something that is rooted in historical facts. Jesus did die on the cross. Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus is Lord. We're putting our faith in something that rests in solid facts. So Paul can say to the Romans, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the essence of faith. Recognizing the truthfulness of what we've just celebrated last week, and then trusting Jesus personally in this way. Verses 8 through 10, Paul takes us now to Lystra. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul looked intently at him. And then note, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Wow! And this story is designed for us to say, wow, because it is what Paul talked about earlier as a sign or a wonder that gave evidence to the gospel that Paul was proclaiming, that God was powerfully at work, that God was in the midst of this. 
The healing of the crippled man displays a faith to be made well. Now, this raises a lot of different issues for us in terms of, well, would God do that for me? And the reality is the power of the resurrection is a power through which God continues to work and God does continue to heal. Um, God's healing work, however, is not a guarantee of physical healing. There's no guarantee in Scripture that everyone who calls on the Lord will be physically healed. But God does, from time to time, intervene for his own purposes in his own sovereign way to bring physical healing to people. Now, we're seeing this happen a lot more in contexts like this where the gospel is penetrating an area that has been dark and hasn't witnessed the testimony of the gospel. So we go into other, especially non-Western contexts where the gospel is going for the first time and you see some amazing things that God is doing to give testimony to his word. And God does continue to heal in this way. But I don't want to say that it never happens here because God can and does at times intervene. Other scripture invites us if we are sick to call for the elders of the church and have them pray over us and seek God for healing. I have seen people healed. I've seen people delivered from demonic influence. I know firsthand that God can do that. And he uh, will do that from time to time in certain instances, but it rests on his sovereignty in this way. On the other hand, I do know that God wants to heal all of our woundedness. That is an implication of the cross, that he wants to bring us peace in our soul. And many people, many of us are walking with deep wounds, deep scars from issues in our life, from ways we've been mistreated, from betrayals, from a variety of different things that bring pain and hurt in our lives. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God wants to bring healing for our woundedness and that he can and he will. Part of the new covenant age is the promise of shalom, well-being. And that well-being is peace in our souls. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And part of regaining that peace is having the woundedness healed. The cross can bring healing. The cross can and will heal wounds. I have a good friend that has written a book called Deep Wounds, Deep Healing, and talks about a process that one can go through to have these sorts of things healed as the work of the Holy Spirit enters in in this, in this process. So yes, God does heal, but not all the time physically. But he invites us to pray about it at any time. But in terms of spiritual healing, in terms of emotional healing and woundedness, God wants to bring us peace and make our souls well. Verses 11 through 18 Another facet of faith. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, 
The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments, rushed out into the crowd and said, man, why are you doing these things? We, we too are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. But even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. It's interesting, in the history of the time, there's a Roman writer by the name of Ovid, who wrote an account about Zeus and Hermes coming to this area in the disguise of normal human beings. And they wandered all around, wandered all around, and no one recognized who they are, and no one exercised hospitality. And there was a couple by the name of Philemon and Baucus who were the only ones to bring Zeus and Hermes in, offer them food, offer them hospitality, and they still didn't know that these were the gods. And the gods left. And then the gods kind of smote the whole area with a big flood and killed everyone but Philemon and Baucus. Now, this kind of story can bring terror to people. And if this story was well known, which it probably was, if there's a couple of people that look like they might be Zeus and Hermes, you better, you better acknowledge that. So that could have been part of the motivation for this quick recognition of, of Paul and Barnabas this way. But they're pagan deities. This isn't the living and true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The key thing that I'd like us to focus our attention on here as we think about faith is not the word faith, but the concept of faith as it appears in verse 17. We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, and then note that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. The Greek word that stands behind that literally means empty things. It's not a politically correct thing to say about the competing religions of that area. Paul terms them empty things. And Paul says you need to turn away from these empty things and embrace the living and true God. This is, again, at the heart of what it means to have faith. It's recognizing the way I have ordered my life and the way I have been living my life is empty. It's foolishness. The things I've set my eyes on ultimately won't bring fulfillment, are not the real things. And then the sudden realization that the God, the living and true God, has revealed himself and that I turn away from the empty things and embrace something that's real. Now, I don't know how many idol worshipers we have here in this room. Probably not too many. 
But idolatry in a biblical perspective is much broader than little figurines and temples and statues. Idolatry can be anything that puts itself up as something that robs our affection away from the living and true God. So the message of this text partly is responding to Easter. What, what are you devoting your life to that when you really look at it is going to turn out to be emptiness for you? Are you aligning yourself? Are you giving your heart and your devotion your money, and everything you have to pursuing something that at the end of the day is completely empty. And part of the message that Paul is bringing, turn your back to that. Embrace the living and true God. Embrace the message of Easter because this is what truly brings fulfillment and this is the ultimate revelation that we have. So faith involves turning from the empty things. And finally, and I'm just going to go straight to verse 22. Paul has planted the churches in Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And now he revisits them. He appoints elders in all the churches and then it says in verse 22, he does this. He was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So faith, and this is our final point, is a lifelong process. It's an initial decision to put our faith in the living and true God, and it's a process of growing where we continue in the faith, and by faith, we make progress in becoming more and more like the Christ that we are now serving. But what's interesting to me is when the Apostle Paul went out and proclaimed the gospel, it didn't stop with just evangelism. I don't know if you've thought about that much. Uh, it didn't stop with just proclaiming the message and, oh, they've responded, great, we'll leave town now. It was equally part of Paul's passion to gather all these people who had responded together in, and form new communities, which they called the church, in each of these cities. Because it was in that context of these new communities of very different kinds of people that God was at work causing the growth that would take place. I remember years ago when I first started going to church, and I didn't start going to church until I was a teenager. I remember in our farming community, there was a family uh, that told my parents, they said, we're Christians, we just don't go to church. Uh, and I remember thinking about that when I was a kid, and I thought, well, that makes a lot of sense because it really is just what you believe. But when you get to know the Word of God, you realize that doesn't make sense at all because the way God has organized this is that we would join together as families. In fact, the bigger metaphor than the church for this gathering of people is family. We're brothers, we're sisters, we're mothers and fathers to each other, and it's in this context that God causes that growth in faith. 
And so we'll bring that to a conclusion at this point because we're a family here, very different people, very different backgrounds, but with the common thread of unity that we have in sharing not only the faith that we have in Christ, but our common experience of the Holy Spirit. And it's in this context of a new family that God is powerfully at work to grow us more and more into his image. I'll close with this verse, Galatians 2.20. And again, this went to these people a few years later. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. The Lord's blessings on you.